This is a Reconstructionist Radio audio book recording. The Problem of Slavery in Christian America, an Ethical Judicial History of American Slavery and Racism by Dr. Joel McDermott, narrated by Joe Salant. Copyright 2017, published by American Vision. To purchase this book, go to AmericanVision.org. Chapter 2, The Provincial Establishment. With a seemingly infinite market for tobacco in England and Europe, Virginia needed an unlimited supply of slaves to produce it. With the controls developed over the 1600s in place, she was in a position to create a full slave society. And that she did. The British Parliament unleashed a monster when it nixed the African Trading Company's monopoly on the slave trade in 1698. Whereas over the last three decades of that century, the colony may have imported around a total of 6,200 slaves, another 9,000 were brought in the next decade alone. By 1710, Chesapeake planters were irrevocably wedded to slave labor. Slaves accounted for nearly 20% of the region's population, and in parts of the Tidewater, the proportion approached 40%. Then they added another 10,000 by 1720, and the importations only increased each decade. By 1750, there were an estimated 100,000 slaves in Virginia. By the 1790 census, almost three times that. The growth in other colonies paralleled that in Virginia. Most notable was that in South Carolina, although relative growth occurred in the North as well. Along with the growth in commerce and the number of slaves, almost all colonies strengthened, systematized, and solidified their slave codes early in the 1700s, yet also kept adding new regulations throughout the century. This especially held true as the burgeoning numbers of slaves naturally led to various attempts at resistance and even violent revolt. Even in places such as New York, where the slave code did not become as oppressive as in the South, instances of arson and rebellion among slaves was enough to draw stiff measures in response. Taken altogether, the provincial era saw a vicious cycle built on the foundations of the slave laws already in place then progressing through an increase in slave-driven commerce, vastly increased numbers of slaves, fears of a potentially dangerous slave population, and a consequential tightening of the slave laws. This cycle would last until the revolution in the North and would remain until the Civil War in the South and in spirit, reality, beyond. Growth in Commerce and Slavery In the early days, wealthy elites dominated control of the labor markets. Even the dearth of permanent slave labor in the 1620s and 30s did not result from a lack of knowledge or desire on their part. Once supply began to trickle in, 
men who were either or would become members of the Council of State were the largest individual importers, with just nine responsible for over half of all black head rights awarded in patients during the 1630s, and only three claiming a third of the total granted in the 1640s. These were the most prominent and wealthiest men, but local bigwigs got in on it also. 76 county office holders were also credited for at least one black headright during these decades, which indicates that local elites were also quite active in obtaining slaves. The rest of the lower and middle planting class collected a quarter or less of the total headrights. The move to acquire permanent slaves paralleled the shift from indentured servants as we have seen. But while the, while the general phenomenon was solidified by 1700 or 1710, evidence shows that the wealthiest men had already achieved black labor predominance by the 1650s and the local elite class soon after that. The move toward permanent slave labor was, therefore, led by the elites, was quite deliberate and was insured as a reality to come quite early. But while the ordinary and lower planters seem to have relied upon indentured labor at much greater proportions for a greater length of time, they also moved systematically to slave labor as well. While only 5.4% owned slaves in the 1670s, the number increased to 11% the following decade, and then 15.2% to close out the century. The trend would continue into the 1700s. By the 1750s, servants had all but disappeared from estate inventories along the tobacco coast. Prices for indentured labor had fallen, and slaves regularly appeared in the estates of small planters. Tobacco and Growth in Demand for Slaves The demand for slaves by lower-class planters probably originated in aspirations to advance socially, but the elite still dominated the markets, whether land, agriculture, or slaves. As we saw earlier, in regard to the original boom, tobacco comprised the vast majority of the economy and much of the political work. This would remain true in the 1720s and 30s, by which time a particular development would cement the control of the large planters for decades to come. At the turn of the 18th century, Virginia's unbridled boom ran into overproduction, and prices plummeted. On at least one occasion, one shipment of millions of pounds of tobacco yielded no return. Suffering low prices, Virginians began looking at schemes to regulate the trade. This, of course, would pit large planters against small, as each vied for an edge in the market. In 1713, Governor Spotswood attempted to install an inspection bureaucracy, but his obvious self-interest in controlling inspectors and ineffective administration led to a failure and repeal by the crown only four years later. 
The next attempts involved a stint system that actually favored the little guy. Planters without slaves could grow up to 10,000 plants per worker, including indentured servants, while those with slaves could only grow 6,000 each. Granted, while the large planters had hundreds more workers, this arrangement could also leave them with thousands of acres left unplanted and was occasioned by no small amount of grumbling on their part. The scheme failed to have the desired effect. While crop supply was now more limited, quality had not improved, and prices still suffered. This opened a window to relieve the grumbling of the large planters. When William Gooch took over as governor in 1727, his first order of business was to remedy this great ill, and it seems he favored the elites. He planned to renew Spotswood's scheme of inspections, but with much greater political savvy. He admitted early on that the rich are much more camped by this law than the poor, because these elites have great tracts of fresh land and many slaves. From this basis, he engaged in a campaign to win over the crown and the large planters, who, who consequently controlled the House of Burgesses. In hardly a letter did Gooch fail to remind administrators back home that His Majesty's revenue will be considerably augmented by his scheme. Unlike Spotswood, who sought to control the inspectors for his own power, Gooch allowed the Burgesses to appoint them, ensuring that the elites knew inspectors who would be in their favor. When the act finally came up for a vote in 1730, it passed 46 to 5. The only disloyal faction was, of course, some of the small planters who saw the handwriting on the wall. Inspections were to be carried out in official, centralized warehouses. Gooch promised the elites these would be built on their large plantations. Elites got to choose the inspectors. Their charge officially was to refuse any subpar tobacco. The poorer farmers had to pack their tobacco and travel miles to the warehouses, with rugged overland travel endangering the fragile leaf. Inspectors could reject the whole lot at their whim on the justification that any given leaf did not meet the grade. Worst of all, the act called for any rejected tobacco to be burned or destroyed on the spot. Thus, a poor farmer could in theory lose his whole crop beneath the eye of a biased inspector with no compensation whatsoever. He would not even have the product to try to sell on a secondary market. It was a total loss. Opposition from the lower class would certainly come. A group of farmers from the northern neck answered the effrontery by burning down four of the new inspection warehouses in 1732. Gooch responded as expertly as he had maneuvered the act to begin with. He apprehended the perpetrators, but treated them leniently while issuing public funds to rebuild the warehouses. He then responded to their protests with a pamphlet full of propaganda. A dialogue between Thomas Sweetscented William Ornico, Planters, 
both men of good understanding and justice love country, who can speak for himself, recommended to the reading of the planters. Using the character of Justice Love Country as his mouthpiece, Gooch persuaded the small planters that they would actually benefit from having trash tobacco burned, in part because higher quality with tightened supply would mean higher prices, and thus while the small guys might sell less, they would be doing so at a price so much higher that it would offset their losses. By the end of the tract, Gooch's two adversarial characters are completely won over and support his scheme fully. The tract seems to have won over the public, and coupled with the violence of even a limited group of uh, opposition, virtually solidified victory for the elite. By 1738 or so, when a representative of the poorer farmers finally articulated their concerns in print, the governing forces at home and in Britain could afford to ignore it. Thus, while their tract, The Case for the Poor Planters in Virginia Under the Law for Inspecting and Burning Tobacco, had made several cogent arguments and pleas, it had come far too late. It reveals, nevertheless, a good example of how particular social classes viewed each other and the roles they played. The rich can make friends to turn the inspectors out of their office. Therefore, they're afraid to burn their tobacco. But the poor must lie at their mercy and be slaves to their humor or be ruined. For the law makes the inspectors arbitrary judges of the planter's tobacco. Though not of the tobacco they pay to the merchants, the rich will certainly be gainers if the poor are discouraged from making tobacco. The result of this battle for control over tobacco regulations had lasting consequences. While it may seem natural enough that the ruling elites with royal peers capably steamrolled the little guys, the greatest losers were the black slaves. Several historians have noted this as the key battle that solidified the power of the planter elite going forward. But more important than this even is the fact that the domination of the largest plantations meant simultaneously the domination of the system of slave labor. Of course, they had already grown dependent upon slave labor by 1710, as already noted, and they always had a powerful influence upon the government. But the Tobacco Inspection Act of 1730 wed the forces even more tightly and further pushed out the competition, creating a juggernaut that even the most powerful sentiments for emancipation and abolition could not later dent, even when popular opinion would be on their side. Just as the powers that had gradually enshrined laws to box in blacks as permanent slaves in their system Now they had moved to ensure that economic system would remain entrenched into the foreseeable future. Gooch's law would remain in effect until the American Revolution, binding black slaves to the stakes of tobacco along with it. The Establishment of Slavery and Rice in Carolina In 1663, 
Just about the time the worst of the core of Virginia's slave statutes first appeared, the province of Carolina received its charter from the crown. Yet while South Carolina may have been 40 years behind Virginia chronologically, in terms of the development, rawness, and cruelty of slavery, it may actually have been somewhat more advanced. Unlike Virginia, where a majority of the original settlers and men of wealth transplanted directly from England, South Carolina grew up as a child of Barbados and the West Indies. Unlike Virginia, which developed a slave system over several decades, South Carolina was founded by slave owners specifically as a slave colony. Indeed, virtually a clone of that already operating for decades in the West Indies. African slave-based sugar plantations initiated in Brazil in the 1570s and with the race for colonization between Britain, Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, and France had spread to the West Indian Islands by the early 1600s. The English started with St. Lucia in 1605, but had others as well. After being founded in 1627, Barbados drew the greatest interest and produced the most wealth until the 1660s. From 1655 to 1670, Britain expanded to the Cayman Islands, the Virgin Islands, and Jamaica. West Indian slavery was particularly harsh and cruel in more than one way. Sugar plantations presented by far the most dangerous work, leading to mortality rates that exceeded birth rates. On Brazilian sugar plantations, slaves had a life expectancy of less than eight years. Mills and blades claimed life and limb, if not in general work conditions, in disciplinary actions. Voltaire emphasized the point in Candid when one Suriname slave reported, those of us who work in the factories and happen to catch a finger in the grindstone have had a hand chopped off. If we try to escape, they cut off one leg. Both accidents happened to me. That's the price of your eating sugar in Europe. Dogs, monkeys, and parrots are much less miserable than we are. The Dutch, who converted me, tell me every Sunday that we are all children of Adam. Perhaps the most famous of the island slave tyrants, Thomas Thistlewood, virtually bragged to all posterity of his brutality and inhumanity in page after page of his journals. Although he appears in Jamaica, and although his cruelties were so harsh they may strike us as an outlier, his 1,400-page diaries relate brutalities not uncommon to either the century, region, or slavery as a whole. On numerous occasions, he recorded punishments meted out to slaves, never expressing remorse or second thoughts. At times, these punishments were exotic in their cruelty. One practice, which he nicknamed Derby's Nose, involved forcing one slave to defecate in the mouth of another. On another occasion, he placed a bondsman in stocks, 
rub molasses on him, and allowed insects to swarm over him during the night. Thistlewood also records in detail 3,852 acts of sexual intercourse with 138 women, many slaves, and many of which were outright rape. As shocking as all these recordings may seem, there is no reason to believe that Thistlewood was uniquely violent or sadistic by Jamaican standards. In fact, Thistlewood and his neighbors actually judged some white newcomers to be too violent. For author Trevor Bernard, violence and brutality were far from incidental to Jamaican slavery. They were its very heart. In a colony with such a large enslaved majority, whites quickly learned that instilling terror, or what Bernard refers to as tyranny, was the surest way to maintain dominance. While Thistlewood arises a generation or two after the initial settling of Carolina, he exemplifies the harshness of the slave-owning culture that produced both. Of the 684 earliest settlers of South Carolina, half arrived from the West Indies. Up until 1737, 11 out of the 23 of the colony's governors came from these islands. Some were the sons of islanders. Thomas Pickney, for example, grandfather of Charles Coatsworth Pickney, the later fierce defender of slavery at the Constitutional Convention, arrived on a Jamaican privateer in 1692. Likewise, the Barbados ruling caste included about 175 large sugar planters with 60 or more slaves each. Insiders from 18 of these families received extensive land grants in Carolina between 1672 and 1692. These migrations did not arise out of a sense of a moral mission or evangelism, but opportunism, practicality, and personal safety. Among other things, the West Indies had grown overcrowded, with lands for new plantations scarce. Sons of wealthy planters that had little room to spread their own wings, so the opening of Carolina made an obvious choice. In addition to this, as dangerous as Caribbean slavery was for slaves, the environment posed even greater dangers to English immigrants. In the tropics, they met malaria and yellow fever for the first time and with no developed resistance. Some locales recorded one baptism per three burials. In worse years, it rose to five. Childhood faced the worst. Some registers record couples with as many as 12 childbirths of which none survived. Jamaica fared worse overall. A full third of infants died within a year, and the next third by age five. Only one in ten people lived past 30, and one in a hundred past 60. Extravagant living did not improve matters. The planter elite and the aspirants attempted to maintain the finest glories of English aristocracy, to the max amid the mosquitoes and humidity. 
Ladies would dress in the voluminous costume with wired headdresses, corsets, bustles, layers of petticoats, and luxuriously textured skirts which trailed the ground. Men followed suit with outlandish periwigs, full-skirted coats, embroidered waistcoats and sleeves, flowing cravats and berry-boned knee breeches. In all this, they did not forget to accessorize with laces, gloves, hose, pumps, and hats. At nights, elites could be found wrapped in silk nightgowns and surrounded in poster beds with mohair curtains and nets. That is, when they finally went to bed. Their obliviousness extended to fast living as well. As planters fared sumptuously every day of the week, dinner and after-dinner drinking lasted four or five hours if company was present. Roast meats, pies, and custards. The diet of the upper class back in England dominated the planter's menu, along with fine cheesecakes, tarts, and creams at local taverns. Special feasts could grow overly boisterous. Gatherings would begin with breakfast and move from there, running all day full of meat and drink with toasts and 25-gun salutes between courses. The more tenacious members of the party were still toasting and firing guns at midnight. But the time was nothing out of the ordinary. One traveler's narrative notes how the planters routinely sat up, half the night's drinking, and partying. One contemporary report, likely a bit exaggerated, claimed four-fifths died of venereal disease. In the end, the whites felt swamped by their black slaves yet enjoyed lording it over them. In the tension between impending death all around them and extravagant consumption, they grew rich fast, spent recklessly, played desperately, and died young. It was these gentlemen and their sons and slaves who first colonized Carolina. Some may have sought to escape from this style of life, yet surely brought much of it with them. Indeed they did, and the fact will have ramifications for the nature of slavery in the deep south later. Trading tropical climes for South Carolina swamps and marshes had little effect, however, and even the Chesapeake was little better. Infant mortality still reached 25 to 30 percent, and one contemporary referred to Charleston as the great charnel house of the country. Thomas Pickney himself died of yellow fever in 1705 at age 39. With little remorse, planters in both the islands and Carolina used harsh realities to justify slavery. White men, they argued, as slave owners would throughout the Americas, could not tolerate this environment under which their whipped slaves perform. Their greater tolerance for disease, harsh work and climate, and pain allegedly arose from their barbarism and savagery, which the Europeans constantly likened to that of animals. Therefore, racism and biology became mutually reinforcing albeit according to a double standard. Where blacks excelled in strength, endurance, and health, whites attributed it to a closer kinship with animals than humans. 
Where blacks suffered more greatly, however, it confirmed their inherent deficiency, filthiness, laziness, neglect of their children, etc. In the end, West Indians did not successfully escape the harsh realities of the island life, but they did succeed in importing Caribbean-style racism and slavery to North America. While sugar did not grow as well, and thus came nowhere near recreating the island sugar plantations, a bag of Madagascar rice found its way into a prominent planter's possession in 1685 and immediately became South Carolina's sugar. Rice production required miles of earthworks, dikes, and canals, all of which slaves dug and built by hand. These structures helped form the rice swamps in which slaves would labor for decades to come, every bit as deadly as the island environments. Planters ramped up the production immediately. In the first decade of the 1700s, there were probably only a few thousand slaves in South Carolina, but demand already flourished. Settler Edward Hearn wrote his family back in England in 1701, saying his property held 10,000 pounds in timber alone, but I can make little advantage of it until I can compass a good gang of Negroes. Such demand was widespread and was readily met by the transatlantic trade. By 1740, there were about 40,000. By the Revolution, there would be 104 thousand. With such influxes, demographics parallel the islands as well. When rice first appeared in South Carolina, whites comprised 80% of the population. By 1720, blacks outnumbered them two to one. By 1740, the roles more than reversed, with blacks constituting 90%. This meant that the same fears and paranoias would arise here as in the islands, as well as Virginia. Thus, along with their imported culture and practice, they would bring slave codes to match anything Virginia had developed as well. Growth in Fear With the rapid influx of blacks over a relatively short time, Whites, both poor and wealthy, reacted to the obvious demographic shift. They had long since stigmatized blacks as brutes and savages, rapacious and animalistic in appetite, an English society fit only for slavery. Regular instances of attempted escape and some of revolt proved they could not be trusted and must be ruled with a heavy hand. Imagine then the state of mind for any given white master or overseer on a South Carolina rice plantation, where within a five-mile radius there were ten slaves for every white person, man, woman, and child. In many other areas, even if the numbers were not as extreme, black slaves nevertheless outnumbered whites. In the several areas where blacks strongly outnumbered, Whites feared black freedom would entail black domination and rule, and even utter expiration of whites altogether. Thus, in many areas, one of the major daily concerns of responsible men was the effective control of masses of slaves.
the majority of slave laws passed had the aim not only of subjugating the black race and enslaving them permanently, but of maintaining control. Every planter knew that the fundamental purpose of the slave laws was prevention and deterrence of slave insurrection. In 1710, Governor Spotswood revealed how weak whites felt in the face of black majorities, what a thin veneer of deception their stance involved, and called for legislative measures for further control. I would willingly whisper to you the strength of your country and the state of your militia, which on the foot it now stands is so imaginary a defense, that we cannot too cautiously conceal it from our neighbors and our slaves, nor too earnestly pray that neither the lust of dominion nor the desire of freedom may stir those people to any attempts. The latter sort, I mean our Negroes, by their daily increase seem to be the most dangerous, and the trials of last April court may show that we cannot depend on either their stupidity nor that babble of languages among them. Without an apparent hint of conscience, the governor acknowledged that these, our Negroes, were not only neither stupid nor brute, but also as willing to fight for their freedom as those would later found the United States on that very principle. Freedom wears a cap which can, without tongue, call together all those who long to shake off the fetters of slavery. Rather than acknowledge the capacity of the human spirit that must underlie this package of qualities, Spotswood called for further tightening of the chains to prevent such an insurrection. I think we cannot be too early in providing against it, both by putting ourselves in a better posture of defense and by making a law to prevent the consultations of those Negroes. Such fears did not dissipate in the face of slave resistance. This could take various forms, from feigning illness, calculated slackness to playing dumb in regard to certain tasks, conveniently broken tools, stealing and consuming staples or livestock, or putting on old massa in a variety of ways, to the more overt form of physical resistance, running away, arson, poisoning, or finally, organized revolt. We still highlight some of these in more detail later. As for now, we will focus on the subjects with which brought judicial and legislative action most relevant to our purposes here, physical resistance and revolt. Slave rebellions. Slave insurrections, of course, did occur. And while not necessarily frequent, they occurred frequently enough to sustain and often elevate the fears already stoked by growing slave populations. We will highlight a few of the more outstanding examples. The first of these occurred in 1676, led by a wealthy planter and statesman, Nathaniel Bacon. Bacon's rebellion did not originate as a slave rebellion, 
and was not primarily a slave rebellion, but it involved slaves rebelling on the promise of freedom. If it did not originate the fears of slave rebellions in the American colonies, it certainly was among the earliest of influence. This rebellion involved more than one underlying social tension, but the proximate cause was the governor's refusal to avenge or even very much protect frontier plantations from Indian raids. Governor Berkeley and a small, tight-knit clique of the wealthiest Virginians, including George Washington's great-grandfather John, controlled the lucrative beaver fur trade with the Indians and would move very little towards angering them, leading to the expression, no bullet would pierce beaver skins. When public angst peaked, Berkeley finally decided to send a militia to put down the marauders, but at the last minute rescinded his orders and laid the issue before the Burgesses. This act, and the Burgesses' subsequent decision to respond only with a series of defensive and expensive forts, angered the public and left the colony a powder keg. Nathaniel Bacon would be the match. An earlier piece of legislation also found renewed interest in 1676 as well. The 1670 law that declared non-Christians arriving by sea to be permanent slaves, but not those by land, had been written that way specifically to prevent the permanent enslavement of Indians. Even those captured as prisoners of war could only receive a sentence of indentured servitude. In the people's haze of anti-Indian war fever, leaving such an exception in place only further proved the governor's softness on Indians. Beacon found himself at the center of a circle of impromptu volunteers who likely had plans of organizing to handle the Indians themselves. When warned by Berkeley, Bacon steamed ahead with an armed militia and began a long career of plundering, torturing, and murdering Indians. In one case, he befriended a peaceful tribe, instigated them to attack a second tribe, and then demanded the booty for himself. The ensuing disagreement led to Bacon launching a surprise attack on the befriended tribe as well, killing over a 100 men, women, and children indiscriminately, and kidnapping many others as slaves. This merciless bloodthirst would set the mold for Bacon. On one occasion, he solidified his control by forcing a convention of leaders to sign an oath of loyalty to him, which included an overt declaration of treason against the crown. On another, he kidnapped the wives of several leaders who opposed him, threatening to put them on the front lines of the battle if Berkeley fired upon his positions. His continued successes praised by the populace, would only further empower and embolden him to greater acts of tyranny and virtual dictatorship. At one point, he is said to have had the whole colony on his side, with the exception of maybe 500 men local to Berkeley's clique, and Berkeley in hiding. Bacon seized the opportunity to attack Berkeley's stronghold. He marched on Jamestown and burned it to the ground. About a month later, the abrupt end to his campaign would come, seemingly by divine appointment. He was stricken with dysentery, described as bloody flux, and died, 
With the Crown's backing, Berkeley regained control and imposed a reign of terror against those who had substantial parts in the rebellion. Charles II is later said to have remarked that Berkeley hanged more people over bacon than he himself had over the beheading of his father. One of the outstanding features of Bacon's rebellion was that alongside the flood of poor white farmers and indentured servants that joined Bacon, a number of black slaves also joined and fought. Moreover, during the period of conflagration between Bacon and Berkeley, both had formed militias, and each attempted to weaken the other by promising freedom to any slaves who would switch sides. It is unlikely that any such promise was kept, certainly not in mass. Among the last rebel holdout groups after Bacon's death was one that included some 400 black slaves and white indentured servants. They were promised freedom if they were disarmed, but it was a lie, and they were delivered back to their masters. Historian Edmund S. Morgan founded the thesis that Bacon's rebellion opened the eyes of the planter elites to see the potential for social catastrophe when poor whites joined blacks in a revolt, and thus the need to drive a social wedge between the two. From here on out, it was suggested the elite would try to diminish their share in white indentured servants and turn increasingly to permanent black slaves. Morgan's thesis contains enough truth to remain a classic, but has seen enough successful challenge to suffer severe qualification. Scholars like Winthrop Jordan brought forth evidence to show that racism existed powerfully long before Bacon's Rebellion, and others have shown that Virginian elites were seeking black slaves much earlier than 1676. The elites were not men on the verge of turning to slavery. They already had and neither Bacon's Rebellion nor the growing scarcity of white servants had anything to do with it. Furthermore, Bacon's efforts did not focus on racial reconciliation or freedom for slaves, considering his indiscriminate hostility to Indians. He influenced the enactment of laws allowing enslavement of all Indians captured in war then subsequently led raids to plunder and enslave neighboring tribes, friendly or not. Likewise, the offers of freedom for slaves were insincere attempts to merely weaken the opponent's forces. The important remnant of Morgan's thesis stands, however. The elite certainly saw the danger of black slaves joining forces with poor whites, indentured or not. If these castes united, as Bacon showed was possible, an alarming upheaval, if not coup, was on the horizon, a lesson that would not soon be forgotten. This early insurrection gave the elite plenty of incentive to stigmatize blacks further so poor whites would at least have a caste upon which they could look down, even if they themselves were barely better off. Keeping poor whites and black slaves from uniting did not prevent the slaves from rebelling on their own, however. Virtually all colonies that had slaves lived in constant fear of potential revolts punctuated by actual episodes on various occasions. And while the northern colonies practiced slavery at a far lower rate, they nevertheless shared in its consequences. In 1712, a group of black slaves conspired to set fire to a building in New York City. 
perhaps with the hopes that it would spread to many others. Then they lay in wait for those who came to put out the flames. They killed nine and injured as many others. When being hunted down, some took their own lives. Others were captured. A contemporary report exhibits the typical fear such episodes inspired. Had it not been for the garrison there, that city would have been reduced to ashes, and the greatest part of its inhabitants murdered. The state executed the prisoners, some of whom may not have even had a part in the crime, creatively to send a message. Thirteen slaves were hanged, one left to die in chains without sustenance, three burned, one burned over slow fire for eight to ten hours, one left broken on the wheel. The latter punishment was a large wooden wheel to which the victim was tied, often spread eagle, with the spaces between the spokes allowing room for bones to give way and break. The subject was then beaten until however many broken bones satisfied the executioner, at which point the victim was left lying to die of exhaustion, pain, exposure, or whatever, often several hours or even days later. Even such terrifying messages, however, do not stick with systematically oppressed people who have no lower to fall and nothing to lose. The impulse to fight for freedom always rises again at some point. One particularly outstanding rep reprisal came with a wave of hysteria in New York in 1740. A series of fires had taken place in Manhattan, and while there was no direct evidence tying even a single slave to them, witnesses named certain blacks they claimed to have seen leaving the scene. Investigations cross a white indentured servant girl named Mary Burton, who was in custody for theft charges, and who started a blaze of her own in rumors naming several suspects. Once authorities seized several blacks, they put them to the stake, but allowed them to save themselves if they would name others. Names naturally poured forth. In the end, even as few whites were hanged, but nothing compared to the 18 blacks, along with 13 blacks burned and 70 deported. Perhaps even worse was the reinforcement of negative stereotypes about blacks in general. One of the judges in the cases penned a book to justify himself, and specifically so, those who have property and slaves might have a lasting memento concerning the nature of them. The judge included one example of his upbraiding a slave during sentencing, saying, Such a worthless, detestable wretches are many, and it may be said most, of your complexion, they have no kindness can oblige ye. There is such an untowardness, as it would seem in the very nature and temper of ye, that ye grow cruel by too much indulgence. So much are ye degenerated and debased below the dignity of humane species, that even the brute animals may upbraid ye, for the ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. Even the very dogs also will, by their actions, express their gratitude to the hand that seeds them. 
such is the fidelity of these dumb beasts. But ye, the beasts of the people, although ye are clothed and fed, and provided with all the necessities of life, without care in requital of your benefactors, in return for your blessings ye give curses, and would scatter firebrands, death, and destruction around them, destroy their estates, and butcher their persons. In a footnote to these comments, the generous judge explained why he made such a public show. As there is like to be a large audience at this trial, thus far was calculated principally with a view to awaken the people to a sense of the danger with respect to the Negroes and other conspirators and to put them upon their guard. What has been called the most serious outbreak of rebellion began near Charleston, South Carolina in 1739. In an effort to destabilize the British colonies, Spain offered asylum to black slaves who could escape to St. Augustine. A group of somewhere between 50 and 100 slaves from near the Stono River tries to seize the opportunity, but perhaps had more in mind since they literally marched, making quite a show of it with their drums, their own flag, and a banner reading Liberty. They began by raiding a local general store, killing two proprietors and stealing weapons and ammunition. They drew recruits, burned several plantations, and killed over a score of white folks along their way. A hastily raised militia finally stopped the march, killing almost 50 at the cost of another score of whites. Once returned to control, the remaining rebels were either hanged or sold off to the gloomy fate of the West Indies. We could list countless more examples of slave revolts. Every colony that practiced slavery both feared and suffered them, from Massachusetts to Georgia. Again, it was a perpetual fear and a recurring issue. To give some idea, in Virginia alone, major slave plots or rebellions occurred in 1722, 1723, 1729, 1730, 1755, and 1767. In South Carolina, various major episodes arose in 1711, 1720, 1730, 1733, 1738, 1739, 1740, 1741, 1748, 1759, 1761, and 1765. Some of these plots were discovered and foiled before any actual violence but their existence still illustrates the same point. Strengthening the Slave Codes In the first decade of the 1700s, Virginia's rulers moved to consolidate all the slave statutes strewn over the previous decades. The result was a unified and strengthened body of laws of a whole generation, now known as the Slave Code of 1705 which would not have been out of place in the 19th century. In addition to the collective aspect, the new code would add several new particulars to advance the oppressions already in place. The legislature would enhance and expand them once again, 
1723. In Virginia's 1705 Act, interracial marriage was strictly forbidden for further prevention of that abominable mixture and spurious issue. The punishment was changed from banishment to six months in jail and a fine of ten pounds. This may seem a bit more lenient than previously, but it is not clear that it was intended that way, unless the former rule had created the public embarrassment of banishing too many white folk. The new codification added a punishment for ministers who performed such marriages who could be fined 10,000 pounds of tobacco, well over half a year's salary. To encourage the apprehension of fugitive slaves, the Act continued rewards of 100 or 200 pounds of tobacco, depending on how far from home the slave was caught. Sheriffs and constables incurred special responsibility if an apprehended slave escaped their detention, they could be held liable for the cost of the lost slave. Responsibility also fell upon individuals. They were not allowed to even suffer a slave to abide on their property for more than four hours without the permission of his or her master and can suffer fines of 150 pounds of tobacco for doing so. For the poor subsistence farmers, this would be a tremendous penalty. The code prohibited free blacks from owning slaves or servants of any but their own color. Thus, the rare instances of free blacks owning white indentures, sometimes highlighted by modern southern apologists, among others, as if, as if it had been a widespread reality, was ended fairly early by statute in this state. Whites could not buy or sell anything from a slave without permission of their master upon pain of one month in jail, then ten pounds surety and a year of probation. Upon a second offense, he would pay four times the cost of the goods taken from the surety. If the surety was not promptly paid, the act added 39 lashes. The 1705 Act incorporated the harsher realities of the previous laws, extending the casual killing principle. If any slave resists his master, or owner, or other person, by his or her order, correcting such slave, and shall happen to be killed in such correction, it shall not be accounted felony, but the master, owner, and every other person to giving correction shall be free and acquit of all punishment and accusation for the shame, as if such incident had never happened. Further, if any black mixed or Indian raise a hand in resistance to any white Christian, in addition to what correction may come from the master, that slave could suffer 30 lashes from a justice of the peace as well. This law was added certainly for runaways, but also slaves merely playing hooky. The very next section says that if any slave was seen with any perceived weapon, including a walking staff, or was merely off his plantation without a certificate of leave from his master, then any individual could arrest them and deliver them to a constable. The slave in question would receive 20 lashes without trial. The law's threat for an additional 30 lashes for resisting arrest aimed to prevent such resistance and thus encourage neighbors and other whites in society to apprehend such slaves more readily. If this were not enough, 
The act extended the casual killing immunity indiscriminately to all white persons. Once a runaway slave was proclaimed publicly as such by announcing immediately after divine worship and posting their name and a demand to return on every church door, it became open season if that slave did not immediately return. At that point, it shall be lawful for any person or persons whatsoever to kill and destroy such slaves by such ways and means as he, she, or they shall think fit, without accusation or impeachment of any crime for the same. In any such case, the owner would again be compensated out of public funds. The law went further than before, however. The statute also now included a threat of dismemberment for runaways. Should a sheriff or anyone else find it in their hearts to capture the slave alive and deliver him to his master, the law provided that that slave be punished by dismembering or any other way not touching his life as they in their discretion shall think fit for the reclaiming of such incorrigible slave and terrifying others from like practices. As Morgan notes, this was no idle threat. In an exemplary case, the court empowered a slave owner to punish two such incorrigible Negroes by cutting off their toes. The act also deprived slaves of what little personal property they may have had, hogs, chickens, etc. Not without irony, the law provided that the church wardens should seize any such property found in possession of slaves and apply the proceeds to the use of the poor of the said parish. Finally, just so no servants or slaves may have pretense of ignorance of the laws, the act required a copy to be published, most likely read, in every church twice a year and once a year in every public court. Apparently, however, even these new strictures were not enough. In 1723, Virginia found the previous laws insufficient to restrain their tumultuous and unlawful meetings or to punish the secrets, plots, and conspiracies carried on amongst them. No meetings of groups of blacks from henceforth would be allowed on any pretenses whatsoever. The act required masters to regulate slave movement and provided fines if they knowingly allowed five or more slaves from another plantation to congregate in any one place. Likewise, any free individual at all being found in the company of such a group of slaves could be fined. Sheriffs or justices of the peace, not acting quickly enough to arrest members of such groups, could find themselves suffer fines. In all such cases, a proportion of the fines went to any informer which must have made for good neighborly relations. If, while any white person attempted to disperse an unlawful assembly of blacks, any black slave should be killed or destroyed in the process. The white would not be held liable and the master would be compensated of the loss of the slave at public expense. The new act also expanded the inherent duplicities of racism in the court. Previous laws forbade virtually any allowance of black testimony as evidence in a court of law. 
But in the context of slave conspiracies, this obviously created an inconvenience. The new law generously opened it up to allow the testimony of blacks to be used as evidence against other blacks. In fact, the judges could merely accept whatever testimony, as to them, shall seem convincing without the solemnity of a jury. False accusers from such slaves, however, could receive severe torture as punishment. They were to have one ear nailed to the public pillory for an hour, and then to have that ear cut off. His torturers would then repeat the process for the other ear, then give him 39 lashes for good measure. Again, this punishment would be imposed at the judge's discretion without a separate trial. After 1723, blacks could no longer be freed in Virginia for any reason except in rare cases for some meritorious services. They removed the provision for doing so if the owner provided for deportation. Now church wardens were empowered to apprehend any unlawfully freed slaves, sell them back into slavery, and keep the money for the church. Likewise, the new law expanded the dismembering laws for absentee slaves with the added clarification that if any slave died as a result of the dismemberment, the persons involved committed no crime and would suffer neither prosecution nor punishment. Upon the exception that a witness, not any blacks of course remember, would testify that such a death occurred willfully, maliciously, or designedly, the law provided for a charge of murder, but in a very limited way. Not only would willfulness, malice, and design be difficult to prove, in the likelihood that they would not be, they expressly provided that no lesser charge would carry any penalty. Neither shall any person whatsoever who shall be indicted for the murder of any slave and upon trial shall be found guilty of only manslaughter uh, incur any forfeiture or punishment for such offense or misfortune. To add insult to a long train of judicial injuries, the 1729 Act formally ended suffrage for all free blacks, mixed, and Indians for any vote at the election of Burgesses or any election whatsoever. And again, the churches were required to read this body of laws twice a year and the sheriff once a year in court. South Carolina's codes progress almost identically to Virginia's, tracking only a few years behind. The deeper South Colony first systematized its scattered decrees in 1712, encoding all the same features we have seen so far with few alterations. Slaves were strictly forbidden to leave their master's domain without permission, upon pain of whipping. Any white who saw such a truant slave had the obligation to apprehend and return them or else face a fine. Informants could receive rewards. In cases of runaways who resisted, any white person could beat, maim, or assault, and if necessary kill, that slave with impunity. To prevent gatherings of blacks in Charleston on Sabbath days and holidays, constables were ordered to create roving police forces and were granted the power to enter into any house without a warrant. Slaves caught with small stolen goods were whipped. 
upon a second offense had an ear cut off, for a third offense had their nose slit, and for a fourth were put to death. Any blacks resisting or attacking any white would be severely whipped unless the white victim were maimed or disabled, in which cases the penalty was death. In cases without maiming or disabling the victim, the death penalty was reserved for a third offense. After whipping and either nose slitting or branding upon the second, there was one great expectation all of this, however. If the black slave was acting in defense of their owner's or owner's property. South Carolina had a few unique aspects as well, however. One difference was that South Carolina's code included a whereas preamble of sorts that openly pronounced blacks as of barbarous, wild, savage natures, and such as renders them wholly unqualified to be governed by the laws, customs, and practices of this province. Yet this province cannot be well and sufficiently managed and brought into use without the labor and services of Negroes and other slaves. And therefore, special strictures were required to restrain the disorders, repines, and inhumanity to which they are naturally prone and inclined. The Carolina Code was more paranoid even than Virginia's. It required masters to perform mandatory searches of slave quarters every two weeks for fugitive slaves and contraband. Anything found had to be documented and reported to the parish clerk. The statute declared fines for any master, mistress, overseer, and government official involved who neglected their duties in this regard. Section 28 of the statute also forbid masters to give any freedom for slaves to leave, work, or take leisure outside the plantation, even during their own free time upon pain of fines. Nor could slave owners allow slaves to live in any location six miles away with more than six blacks resident unless at least one white person lived there as well. In some cases, the differences of the Carolina Code were harsher than Virginia. Runaway slaves who could be proven to have had intended to leave the colony altogether, could receive the death penalty. Anyone, including whites, who aided such an escaping black could also receive the death penalty. In any cases of the accidental or punitive death of the slave, the public would compensate the master for his financial loss. Simple runaways who remained in the colony were punished like in Virginia, whipping first, then branding with an R on the second offense. A third offense meant the loss of an ear. A fourth offense in South Carolina, however, was punished with castration. No fear, however, for the statute provided for contingencies. In the case the slave did not survive castration, the master was compensated for the loss. Just in case this did not solve the problem, the statute actually envisioned a fifth offense for which the law commanded one of the slave's legs to be cut off above the heel or else the death penalty. Exceeding even the lax standards and court procedures for murdered slaves in Virginia, South Carolina in 1712 openly allowed for the willful murder of slaves upon penalty of fines only. 
Section 30 specifically outlined that if any person shall of wantonness or only of bloody-mindedness or cruel intention violently kill a Negro or other slave of his own, he shall pay into the public treasury 50 pounds. If one killed someone else's slave, however, he paid both the public treasury and the full value of the slave to the owner. In neither case was there any other penalty. Murdering a slave, even willfully, therefore, was considered a mere civil tort on property, not a crime. In cases of accidental killing, a third party was only liable for the owner's actions at law unless the slave was involved in stealing or resisting, in which cases he could be killed with impunity. Only a couple years later, the legislature decided it had not provided enough space for prosecutions of slaves who may strike or injure a white person, particularly masters, mistresses, or overseers, so it loosened the judicial standards for conviction. After 1714, if, for want of evidence sufficient to prove any alleged attack, the oath of any white person so struck or maimed shall be sufficient to convict or condemn such slave or slaves. Considering such an offense could possibly receive the death penalty, such a low burden of proof is startling to say the least. Even beasts would receive greater prosecutions, due process of facts and law for the case, requirement of two witnesses under biblical law. The same 1714 additions included the first codified attempt to curb the increase of slaves due to the slave trade. The natural increase of the slave population had grown quite well enough to alarm many, not to mention the effects of the awareness of the disproportion in demographics in some areas already noted. The act lamented that, though the afflicting providence of God, the white persons do not proportionably multiply by reason whereof the safety of the said province is greatly endangered. Thus, it added duties of two pounds per head to curb the importation of slaves. Duties would be raised throughout subsequent years. When this tariff first failed to have its desired effect, for example, the assembly only three years later hiked the tax to 40 pounds per head, but this extreme measure was only the last four years and was actually curtailed already in 1719. Few of these raises seem to have had much effect, with the exception of the decade of the 1740s after the Stono Rebellion, as importations continued in the tens of thousands every decade until closed after the revolution. Finally, to add to the strictures against slaves possessing any personal property, the 1714 addendums further forbid them to even plant for themselves gardens of corn, peas, rice, etc. Masters could be fined the exorbitant sum of 20 pounds for allowing any slave to do so. Both in 1722 and 1735, South Carolina republished its slave code substantially unaltered, but not completely. The 1722 code allowed testimony of blacks to be used against blacks in certain cases. It also required the master's gun room to be locked up. It also observed that many times local constables and marshals 
did not actually carry out penalties against slaves as required, so it added fines for those who neglected to do so from then on. Finally, it required masters who manumitted any slaves to provide for their deportation also. This meant, of course, there could be no further addition to the number of free blacks in South Carolina. In 1735, the law skipped nose-slitting for a second offense of attacking a white person and allowed for any punishment whatsoever, think torture, short of death, which was still reserved for a third offense. Interestingly, the new act increased the willful killing fine of previous years to a whopping 500 pounds. The irony of this law, which was obviously to protect slave lives to some degree, though still not acknowledging the obvious murder, indicates that the previous penalties were not enough to deter the act, and thus the act must have been common enough to raise troublesome questions. This act also increased the fines for authorities who neglected to execute punishments and cut in half the amount of time a manumitted slave had to get out of the colony. Finally, so that slaves finally may learn their place in society, the 1735 Code forbid them to wear any clothing above the condition of slaves, confining them to Negro cloth, duffels, coarse kersies, osnabrigs, blue linen, checked linen or coarse garlics or calicoes, checked cottons or scotch plaids, not exceeding 10 shillings per yard for the said check cottons, scotch plaids, garlics, or calico. One historian comments that the requirement that he always wear the most inferior clothing, the Negro cloth, ensured he never have an appearance giving him even minuscule status. To enforce this provision, any white person who saw a slave wearing forbidden clothing was empowered to seize the clothing on the spot for their own possession and use. After Stono Slave Code Revision claimed to a climax in South Carolina after the Stono Rebellion. The following year, in 1740, the legislature responded with even more stringent additions in yet another newly republished slave code. Further, this revision encoded a fact already obvious but nowhere as openly stated as now. Whereas Virginia had taken a long incremental approach to boxing in black slaves as chattel, South Carolina openly declared them in 1740 as chattel's personal, as well as the property of His Majesty's subjects in the province. Aside from currently free blacks at that time, this new status attached to all blacks, Indians, and mix, as well as their offspring born in the province. More directly in response to the rebellion, the 1740 Act expanded the acceptance of slave testimony without oath to all causes whatsoever against another slave. It also expanded the use of the death penalty to cases of arson. Tavern owners and retailers were forbidden from selling any alcoholic beverages to slaves without a letter from their owners. Slaves could not walk in groups of seven or more, 
and teaching slaves to write was officially outlawed. Perhaps in acknowledging that the treatment of slaves had contributed somewhat to the rebellion, the 1740 Act included mild nods in their favor. The penalty for willfully murdering a slave increased from 500 pounds to 700 pounds, surely a pointless endeavor. More helpfully, work days for slaves were capped at 15 hours for summer months and 14 hours during the winter. On top of these developments, the laws requiring constables and marshals to execute whippings and maiming penalties were altered to allow the authorities to compel slaves in their behalf to execute these punishments on other slaves. Slaves who refused would be whipped, but those who obliged received a nominal reward of five shillings. Most disturbing, however, was the provision for threat of slaves escaping to St. Augustine, Florida. The act instituted rewards for any such slaves attempting that journey, dead or alive. Slaves delivered alive brought the best price, but in case killing the slave was preferred, the bounty hunter need only present the scalp of a grown Negro slave with the two ears to receive the hefty sum of either 20 or 50 pounds, depending on how far away the slave had been caught. Even these changes did not suffice for too long. A 1743 edition specifically addressed insurrections and other wicked attempts by Negroes by adding a requirement that all able males carry guns to church on Sundays. Elders and ministers were required to inform against any member who neglected to carry and could be fined if they did not report. In 1751, another revision took up the issue of poisoning by slaves, which had apparently grown somewhat popular. The act affirmed the death penalty for poisoning, but also added it for those who helped to obtain or convey the poisons. Further, to prevent blacks any access to poisons, slaves were prohibited from employment as apothecaries or doctors. Slaves who may inform on any potential poisoning were provided rewards. Finally, and perhaps belaboring the point, a 1754 act aimed to readdress the problem of stealing slaves and reinforce the penalties this gave probably the most overt definition of slaves as property in the period and is worthwhile to close this section. Whereas, by the laws of this province, Negroes and other slaves are deemed to be chattels personal and are in every respect as much the property of their owners as any other goods or chattels are. Development in the North Again, while we focus almost exclusively here on the more egregious instance of the South, many of the phenomena described above also occurred in northern slavery as well. We have already seen the brutality and murderous rashness of New York's reaction to the rebellions there in 1712 and 1740. We read the racism of the judge whose expressions rival anything written by a Southerner in regard to their depravity, degradation, and perverse denial of hope for a group of fellow humans. Beyond this, 
New York actually beat Virginia to the punch in systematizing its slave codes. In 1702, Act for Regulating of Slaves included many of the features already observed in Virginia and South Carolina. Masters were now allowed to punish slaves however they saw fit. Short of murdering or dismemberment, slaves could not assemble in groups larger than three. Buying or selling with slaves was forbidden, and slave testimony previously allowed was forbidden except against other slaves. The same double standards seen in the South beset New York law. The rape of a free woman was a capital offense, but the rape of a slave was not. On top of this charge, the rebellion of 1712 provoked new legislation for suppressing conspiracies and rebellions among blacks, and further additions came in 1717 and 1745. New York's progressive code changes responded not only to crises, but to a steady increase in slave numbers in general as well. By 1703, blacks totaled about 11% of the population. In 1711, the authorities established a slave market on Wall Street. By 1723, slaves reached 15% of the population. By 1732, the city imposed a stiff duty on slaves imported directly from Africa, preferring instead the already seasoned slaves from the Caribbean. In addition to increased numbers of slaves and code changes in other northern colonies, New England continued to lead the transatlantic trade in supplying the North American colonies with slaves throughout the century. In Rhode Island, for example, per capita duties on slaves show that the colony imported hundreds for itself alone. But as we saw in the last chapter, Rhode Island alone accounted for the majority of slave importations into North America. The majority of these occurred in the 1700s, particularly in the latter quarter of that century. This role would continue into the 19th century, although at a lower percentage of the total. The 10 most active slave traders in America, calculated by the number of voyages either financed in the whole or in part, all resided in Rhode Island and comprised of her wealthiest elite families. For example, the DeWolfs and the Browns, of Brown University fame. And after the Seven Years' War, the British occupation of Cuba and resulting treaty eased that island into American slave trading activity. James DeWolf took full advantage, not only conducting many slave voyages that way, but also settling three of his own plantations on the island. These allowed DeWolf to hold his stock of slaves until prices rose in America to his satisfaction and he could employ them in profitable production in Cuba in the meantime. Treatment of blacks in nearly any phase would be just as horrible in the North and in the South at this time. James DeWolf himself faced charges of murder in 1791 for throwing a slave woman overboard. He had judged her to have smallpox and tossed her in order to spare both cargo and crew from possible infection. Upon indictment, he fled the local jurisdiction until he could arrange a deposition, perhaps selectively arranged to be more favorable to him, in St. Thomas. The judge's decision exhibits everything that was wrong with the system. This act of James DeWolf was morally evil, but at the same time physically good and beneficial to a number of beings. The system acquitted DeWolf, 
who thus got away with murder. Lest the focus on one big name lead us away from the bigger picture, remember the lesson mentioned in the last chapter of how much the broader New England society depended upon the slave system and profited from it. The shipping business was huge for New England, making up the single largest source of business revenue of any merchant activity. Of the gargantuan sums brought in, over two-thirds came from trade with the slave-rich Caribbean. Trade with the slave plantation economies of the Caribbean seems to have been a major factor, both directly and indirectly, in stimulating and sustaining economic expansion and rising per capita incomes in New England in the quarter century that culminated in the Revolutionary War. When the likes of DeWolf for other elite finance slave voyages, they often did so only partially as joint ventures. This opened opportunities for investment to many occasional investors who were not necessarily local elites, very similar to the stock market today. Virtually the whole of the New England population relied to some extent, and many to a large extent, upon slavery for their wealth. Even if we do not judge such indirect involvement, however, with the same revulsion we do the more proximate abuses, though we probably should, morally speaking, the racism and degradations of slavery still permeated the masses in New England as strongly as the South, long predating what would become a regular phenomenon of later Southern life a mob in Roxbury, Massachusetts, in 1741, lynched a black man, allegedly for stealing some money. The Boston Newsletter reported how the slave was, by diverse person, tied to a tree and whipped in order to bring him to confess the fact, after which he was taken down and lying some time upon the grass was taken to his master's house but died soon after. If a black man could be lynched to death without due process in the pinnacle of Puritan Massachusetts, where across town local magistrates, governor and all, would assemble every year to hear election sermons on the need for godly rule and faithfulness to God's law and order, it could happen anywhere. Conclusion By the close of the 1600s, Slave codes and customs had become entrenched and guaranteed a switch from largely white indentured servitude to black lifetime slavery. The following era would build upon these commitments as well to see a boom in the number of imported and enslaved Africans. Along with custom, the slave codes had gradually grown up piecemeal to ensure blacks had little to no escape from permanent slavery in America. Very early, in the 1700s, colonies moved to ratchet the chain even more tightly with consolidation of the codes and expansion of the customs and practices of American slavery. Custom and court both reinforced the belief that blacks were specially fit only for manual labor, and that only in a situation of permanent slavery. This belief would be repeated as a defense of American slavery until well after the Civil War, including variations from the religious to the allegedly scientific and Darwinian.
First, however, the defense of this now entrenched system would have to overcome the challenge of a revolution, not just a political revolution, but one in national philosophy. The slave system was about to come up against the demands of certain self-evident truths, such as that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Slavery and slave trading from Massachusetts to Georgia and then beyond were about to have to face the profession that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Slavery was about to contend with the next progress and the sanctification of both social values and their political application. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.